Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Divya Inna and welcome to Talk Water, a Bluetech research podcast series focused on providing water market intelligence, a place where we discuss new and emerging water technologies, growing markets, and how the future of the water sector is being shaped and changed by the broader mega trend of the fourth industrial revolution. Thank you very much for joining us. And again, a very warm welcome. Earlier this month, Stephen Colbert on The Late Show joked about the recent raw water phenomenon. For those who are not yet familiar with this, this is a new fad in which the public is invited to pay for water that's unfiltered, untreated and unsterilized. And sure, similar to the followers of the raw food movement who embrace anything natural, the organic natural culture in raw water has enticed some consumers. But while the trend is hip around Silicon Valley, many water professionals are shaking their heads. So on today's episode, we speak to Bluetech CEO Paula Callahan about Bluetech's thoughts on this. We'll then follow that up with a short one-minute pitch from a selection of innovative companies, all of whom Bluetech have screened and picked to showcase at the Bluetech Forum event this year in June. But before we get started, let's hear from Reese Owen, our research editor on Bluetech's work this month. Okay, sure. Well, this month, uh, well, say last month in February, at the Water Environment Federation Mid-Year Meeting in Atlanta uh, last month, Bluetech hosted an Environmental Technology and Trends Horizon Scan. Uh, which is a discussion forum with industry leaders from utilities, equipment manufacturers and consulting firms from across the US. And they were asked their views on the industry drivers and key trends that we feel are going to shape the water industry in the years ahead. So lots of very interesting discussion and feedback, uh, differences in viewpoints from the younger and older uh, staff at the utilities and, and different viewpoints coming from different parts of the sector. So we've distilled down the key takeaways from that meeting and published them this month. We also have a blueprint which looks at 1,4-dioxane. This is a, a contaminant found in groundwater and surface water. It's a widely used synthetic industrial chemical and uh, it's under review by the EPA uh, as a possible or probable carcinogen is the legal term. Uh, it's currently unregulated, but there are guideline levels internationally. Um, they range from uh, 70 micrograms per litre in uh, South Carolina to, uh, in Germany, I think they say 0.1 micrograms per litre. So there's a wide variance. The EPA's overall health advisory level is 0.35. Uh, so there was a study which found, uh, which tested 4,800 public water supply systems around the US, and they found that 7% of those systems, or 327, actually exceeded that level. So this is a potentially very widespread problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, The substance itself is on the EPA's first 10 chemicals to receive safety reviews under the Toxic Substances Control Act. So we're wrapping all this up uh, and and looking at the market potential and the current landscape uh, of treatment technology, which is mainly AOP, it seems. So that's our blueprint this month. And then we also have, looking ahead to the AMTA Membrane Technology Conference in Florida uh, in early March, we've picked out 30 papers which we feel are particularly impactful and, and, and reflect innovative and emerging trends. 
So this is just our curated pick out of the you know around 200 sessions, the top 30, which we feel are the very most cutting edge that uh, people may want to check out. And that's in our monthly intelligence briefing, which is coming out pretty soon. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Rhys. Um, interesting point about 1,4-Dioxane. Um, we're focusing on a number of different contaminants this year. 1,4-Dioxane is one of them. We're hoping to look at chromium-6 in the coming future as well. And last year, again, similar to 1,4-Dioxane, we had the whole outbreak on PFAS. So it's good that we're unearthing these the consequences of having these emerging contaminants in our water and so hopefully you know the EPA will come up with a regulation for this but it, it is as you say at the moment quite diverse. Yes exactly there's a whole range of micropollutants and yeah. uh, awareness is increasing all the time and, and uh, we think that uh, you know, whether it's uh, in the six months you know, or next year the direction is only in the direction is only going to go ahead to a more regulation. More uh, regulation. People yes. realise. Uh, yeah. So watch the space. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Reese. Much appreciated. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Moving on to our next segment. As you might know, each year we handpick a selection of 14 or 15 innovative technology companies to showcase at the Blue Tech Forum event. At the event, the companies will host a roundtable interactive session to share insights and discuss their technology in further depth. We'll hear today from five of those shortlisted companies who will each share a few words about their technology. So let's start with the American company Aquam offering a bioelectrochemical technology. Now, Aquam stood out to us for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's the only company that directly competes with well-known Cambrian innovation in the bioelectrochemical technology space. Secondly, rather than being a biogas generation anaerobic treatment technology, it directly generates electricity at about 0.2 to 0.8 kilowatt hours per kg of COD treated. So the technology is energy neutral at a minimum with the higher with the higher the strength the more electricity that's recovered. Number 3, the technology claims and has demonstrated 65% COD removal with a four-hour retention time. And it's proven its technology in very different markets, such as swine wastewater, the residential wastewater, and they've got ongoing trials in the dairy sector. And they're preparing to launch a commercial pilot in 2018. So with all of this in mind, let's hear more from Aquam. Hi, my name is Oriana Bretschker. I'm the founder of Aquam Technologies. At Aquam, we provide scalable and modular bioelectrochemical systems for the on-site treatment of high-strength wastewaters. We have been piloting our technology for over two years and demonstrating an 80% elimination of incoming primary sludge. We have also shown energy recovery as direct electricity at a rate of 0.2 kilowatt hours per kilogram of COD without generation of any methane. We've also demonstrated a 65% removal of COD in a four-hour hydraulic residence time. All of these benefits lead to significant savings for our end users, and we estimate we can save our food and beverage end users up to 50% in overall operational costs for wastewater treatment. We also offer extremely small footprint installations for our industrial users. Please contact info at aquam.tech to learn more. Next up is a company called Aquamembranes, a Canadian 3D printing company who've developed a process that prints spacers directly on a membrane sheet 
which it claims to be a disruptive introduction to the reverse osmosis RO marketplace. Certainly the larger players such as IDE Technologies and RWL Corporation would seem to agree. They've endorsed and funded Aquamembrane's product development for both pressure retarded osmosis and conventional reverse osmosis applications. So let's hear from Aquamembrane's next. My name is Craig Beckman. I'm the CEO of Aquamembranes, where a technology company based in New Mexico is innovating spiral-wound RO elements. Our printed spacers replace mesh spacers in traditional elements. This allows two advantages in operation. The first, because the printed spacers are thinner, we're able to increase the surface area in traditional spiral elements. For example, in a 80-40 standard element, we can go from 440 square feet to 600 square feet with the same pressure drop and salt rejection characteristics. The second advantage that we've tested is lower fouling. Because the printed spacers are more open, we are able to reduce the fouling tendency of the element and increase life. Please check out more at www.aquamembranes.com. Hydrothermal processing is an area Bluetech have been tracking for a number of years. And while the industry has applied significant effort over the past three years, or the, over the past three decades, sorry, to develop and commercialize hydrothermal processing technologies, the results have been largely unsuccessful. The market for biofuel has not yet been proved. Also, the liquid fraction typically returned to the treatment plant headworks may have high concentrations of ammonia and COD, making side stream treatment a must-have. So there are a number of reasons that support the thesis that significant collaborative effort is necessary to shepherd complicated thermochemical technologies from concept to implementation in the public sector. One company, however, Jenny Fuel, has enjoyed the support of a committed research team. So let's hear from Jenny Fuel next. Hello, my name is James Euler, and I'm the founder and president of Genifuel. Our technology is called hydrothermal processing, which uses temperature, pressure, and water to convert wastewater solids to oil and gas. The process is very complete, converting more than 99% of the wastewater solids, so essentially nothing is left. It's also very efficient, using only 14% of the energy we produce to run the system. What this means is that hydrothermal processing solves two major problems in the wastewater industry, which are resource recovery and solids management, by eliminating the solids altogether. The process is extremely flexible and can be inserted without disruption into existing flows. We also provide additional benefits such as phosphorus capture and elimination of pharmaceuticals and other difficult chemicals. When all of this is taken into account, the Genifuel system provides significant cost savings to the utility, generates revenue from the oil and gas, and produces major environmental benefits. There is much more to tell, but this gives a quick summary of what hydrothermal processing can do for the wastewater industry. Thank you. Next up is Sarah Helix, a ceramic membrane company. We're seeing that early stage companies around the world are developing novel me methods to produce ceramic membranes, even as established key established ceramic membrane companies strive to bring down the price to be competitive with polymeric membranes on a whole life cost basis. 
A crop of innovative new early stage companies have appeared over the last few years, offering unique and new ways to produce ceramic membranes. Sarah Helix is one of them, and they're an American company um, that use a filter made of renewable ceramic material. Uh, the combination of high purity with high durability helps to reduce energy by more than 90% compared to thermal separation methods. So let's hear a little bit more from Sarah Helix. Hi, my name is Susan McKay and I am the CEO of Sarah Helix. At Sarah Helix, we're taking ceramic filtration to the next level using our innovative DNA ceramic technology. We use DNA to make incredibly small holes in the ceramic. The result is a filter that can remove dissolved solids under a range of challenging process conditions. Our filters have been used to recover rare earth elements from acid mine drainage, as well as soften oily produced water, both applications taking advantage of our unique combination of durability and high purity. We are currently commercializing a new process that uses a non-biological pretreatment followed by our filters to purify industrial wastewater for reuse. We have demonstrated the ability to treat high-load wastewater generated by food and beverage facilities, both breweries and dairies, and remove BOD and COD to reuse levels at greater than 97% hydraulic recovery. All of this at a cost per gallon of one and a half cents. This simple, efficient process can remove both suspended and dissolved solids without using biological treatment and with an ROI to the customer of less than two years. And finally, the advent of new DNA sequencing technologies now makes it possible to determine the microbiome, or, or in other words, the full spectrum of microorganisms in any given sample. Given we still don't fully identify and understand the population dynamics of the microorganisms in the water, the use of microbiome and DNA sequencing is adding a new chapter to the status quo of microbial control. One company, Microdetectives, has developed a way of applying advanced DNA sequencing to identify and quantify nearly 100% of the microbes in a sample of water. It's disruptive considering most existing technologies only quantify microbial activity in a sample, whereas this company performs metagenomic analysis using DNA sequencing to, relieve, to reveal the types of microorganisms within a sample. And this information can, for example, inform the health of aerobic versus anaerobic tanks. So let's hear more from microbe detectives. Imagine trying to solve a problem when you have only 1% of the data. Now imagine getting the remaining 99%. I'm John Tillotson, CEO of Microbe Detectives. We generate that additional 99% for the water industry using DNA. The water microbiome holds the potential to transform the water industry using the power of DNA. Yet 99% is not measured in industry due to limitations with standard test methods and is referred to as microbial dark matter. We digitize this dark matter, served up as a DNA subscription service to municipal and industrial clients to optimize water processes and mitigate risks. We are the first mover, well vetted and poised for growth. Our beachhead is renewable resource recovery, where a client has saved $35 million in design costs and 500000 in operating expenses using our DNA service to optimize their biological nutrient removal system. Check us out, microbedetectives.com, and for our leadership summit, microbiomewatersummit.com.
Next, I catch up with Bluetech CEO Paula Callahan to talk about just what this hype about raw water has been all about and to see if, if it even makes any sense. Hi, Paul. Thank you for joining us. You recently wrote an article um, about your take on the raw water fad and you mentioned that while drinking completely untreated water seems you know, like, like an extreme in the trend towards a more natural, organic diet, there is a hidden element of truth in that people's trust in their local water supplies is diminishing and there is a belief that it is not possible uh, to maintain an entire drinking water network in a sterile state. So what would all of this mean ultimately? What, what's your take on this? Well, it's an interesting fad and it's been the subject of, you know, comedy, parody. Um, people have been astonished by it. But there is, an, there are some trends here which are worth taking note of. The raw water movement are one side of a of a movement which has lost quality uh, or lost confidence in the ability of a utility to produce good quality drinking water. They feel that they want more naturally occurring minerals in the water. They don't like the fact that there could be chlorine or fluoride in the water. And there is an element of truth in that. I mean, chlorinated byproducts can produce trihalomethanes, which are carcinogenic. Um, now, on the other end of the pendulum here, you would have people who are moving towards point of use or point of entry filtration because they're concerned about endocrine disrupting compounds, micropollutants, pharmaceuticals, and they want to, you know, go to the nth degree to treat it. So whether you have the raw water movement that is doing no treatment and the point of use, which is doing, you know, a very high level of treatment, the common denominator between the two is that it speaks to a an increased public awareness about water quality and democratization of that. And secondly, that people want to, you know, become more empowered to to address this issue themselves rather than relying on the utility to do it. Well, you touched on two very important things there. I just want to pause and just reiterate that. One is that we are indeed seeing two different water movements here. One, a move towards consuming raw water, and this and the second one is a move to wanting to know what is in the water and consumers are taking initiatives to install point-of-use filters at homes. And both, interestingly enough, as you say, stem from the same issue, that there is a basic lack of trust or lost faith in our public water supplies. And you're right, consumers are now more empowered to know what's in their water, and hence we see the demand for real-time monitoring technology. But anyway, if all this stems from people's lack of trust, the solution is not, I don't think, to just opt out of the public water supply. So what's the answer to all of this? I mean, what can we do that we're not doing already? Well, we've done an excellent job um, as an industry in safeguarding public health. You know, the biggest advances in longevity and reduced mortality arguably were as much down to civil and environmental engineers as they were to medical advances, you know, in the 1900s due to chlorination of drinking water and better sanitation. Um, However, our thinking is evolving. People used to think that you could kill everything in that network and you know, you'd have a sterile drinking network. That's not the case. There's a paper at the IWA Leading Edge Technology Conference this year in um, China, which is entitled Managing the Drinking Water Microbiome, which speaks to the fact that people now recognize there are bacteria in the network, just like there are bacteria in our body, and that's fine, as long as they're not pathogenic. And in fact, it's a good thing because they create competition that outcompetes pathogenic bacteria. So, you know, you can't dismiss entirely the argument that there are, you know, you can have bacteria in water. But if you're collecting surface water, 
the possibility that it could be impacted from animal waste or, or human waste is too high, really, on an ongoing basis to be able to guarantee that you can rely on that. Um, however, use of sensors and data is allowing us to know what's in that water in more real time. And that, I think, is a part of what could be a big catalyst towards this movement. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we're still talking about this in six months' time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suspect we will. I suspect that, you know, this is today's fringe, but today's fringe might be tomorrow's mainstream. And it was covered in you know, some of the late night comedy shows in the US. Uh, Colbert yeah. did an absolutely excellent take on it. I, I'd advise everybody, anybody to watch. But I, I think we will be. And um, I, I think the mineral aspect of it also is is true. We've seen point of use companies like Mite that we had at Divya, you remember we had them at, at the Aqua Amsterdam Pavilion last year. Yeah. Exactly. And what they do is they distill the water but they remineralize it and you can buy a little cartridge just like an espresso machine cartridge where you could say, Oh, I'd like a moderately hard water today or I'd like one that's just perfect for tea and Again, that's not actually a million miles away from what the raw water folks are advocating, you know, in, in the sense of a higher awareness of mineral content. <laughs> Customizing yeah. your water. That's great. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we all use Fitbit yeah. watches. I mean, you probably have a, you know, a Fitbit watch or one of these things that tells you how many steps you took yesterday, how many hours you slept, and that increasing awareness of health. I mean, isn't it reasonable to think that people will realize that water is fundamental to their health and that, you know, why don't they have as much information about the water as they do about, you know, their footsteps and their sleep patterns. I think that's a trend I could see developing. And, you know, the other thing is that we often hear or we've often heard critics say that the bottled water industry draws in exorbitant prices. I think I think typically bottled water is about 100 times more expensive than what you pay your local utility. Which might, which might be, you know, a cent a liter, and bottled water might be around a dollar or a euro a liter. So going back to raw water, we're seeing that raw water is being sold at sixty dollars per two and a half gallons, and despite the costs of raw water, you know, it's so popular that it's out of stock in many of the stores. So that was just an observation that people are willing to pay so much for raw, untreated water. But, you know, you've even seen, even seen in the Blue Tech offices that, you know, many of the team I observed were drinking bottled water. And um, so it's a trend. And I think it's one that we're going to track continually, gather data on it, look for how public opinion is moving, perhaps look at how new sensor technology for online monitoring could change this, where it's at, and how data about the risks of emerging contaminants, how that could move this. So it's, it's something that we're actually going to take quite an analytical view on to keep track of it and see what effect it might have in the next, you know, three to five years in the sector. Great. Thanks very much for your time, Paul, and thanks for sharing the insights. We look forward to tracking this space and seeing how this evolves in the coming months. Thanks, Divya. Thank you.